I feel like something has shifted in the universe because the McKnights are sitting over there. <laughs> so it's that time of year again when everything seems to be bathed in green and red, except here. I was recently downtown and everything from the Merchandise Mart to Millennium Park seemed to be glowing with red and green lights. The two colors that have come to be permanently associated with Christmas. When I was growing up, I never really wondered about this red and green. It's just the way things were. These are the colors of Christmas. Everyone knew that. Later, I heard that the red symbolized Christ's blood and the green symbolized the life of the evergreen fir tree. Or that the green and red came from holly branches with their red berries. Holly leaves and berries were linked with Christ's crown of thorns and became the basis for some well-known Christmas carols, such as the holly and the ivy, which is not to be confused with a holly jolly Christmas. <laughs> These are the noble reasons for the red and the green, the ones that I believed for many years. But there are people who know much more about this than I do, people who write about the history of color. Who knew? In their co-authored book, The Secret Language of Color, Joanne and Ariel Extet point to one single event that solidified our association of green and red with Christmas. The year was 1931. The artist was Haddon Sundblom, and the product was Coca-Cola. Some of Sunbaum created the jolly, rotund, red-cheeked Santa Claus, whose red robes just happened to match the red color of the Coca-Cola label. Imagine that. Prior to this, renditions of Santa were often much thinner and had a spectrum of colors, not just red. All that changed with Sunbaum's description of Santa, often pictured near a green fir tree. Thanks to Sunblom, we all know exactly what Santa looks like, and we know that the colors of Christmas are green and red. At least this is what I thought until I came to Redeemer 26 years ago. Imagine my surprise to enter Advent, only vaguely aware of what that meant, to find purple or blue and rose-colored candles. Where was the green and red? I was so confused. Now, there's a lot of tradition concerning these colors for Advent. Purple uh, symbolizes repentance and preparation, blue, hope. And we have heard two excellent sermons that have helped us to understand more about this. Two weeks ago, Dr. Felipe talked about the darkness in which Advent begins, the darkness before Jesus's first Advent, and the darkness of the world in which we live. The first Advent candle is sometimes called the prophecy candle, as it recalls the numerous prophecies associated with Jesus' incarnation. Last week, De Deacon Ethan stressed the waiting and longing that is also associated with Advent. The second Advent candle is sometimes called the Bethlehem candle, as it recalls Joseph and Mary's journey from, uh, uh, to Bethlehem from Nazareth a journey of about 80 miles. This past week then focuses on preparing. So this brings us to today, the third Advent, third Sunday of Advent, with its rose or pink candle, which symbolizes joy and rejoicing. Hello. It's sometimes called the shepherd's candle, 
since it recalls the joy of the shepherds in the field who were the first ones to receive Jesus's birth announcement and who received this news with great rejoicing. And just so that you are not left wondering, next week we return to purple. The fourth candle is sometimes called the Magi candle or the Revelation candle, and it focuses on beholding. And then finally on Christmas Eve, we have a white candle, the Christ candle, which symbolizes purity and victory. I have come to love and to be shaped by these, this rich tradition. Each Sunday of Advent, I light the appropriate candles in my own Advent wreath and consider the significance of each. So this brings us back to the candle that we light today, the rose candle associated with joy. And it's not hard to see why this week of Advent is associated with joy. Today's lectionary readings are filled with rejoicing. Today we'll focus on the canticle that's called the Magnificat. And it's called that because the first word of the Latin translation is Magnificat, which could be translated, my soul magnifies the Lord. <coughs> And in case you're wondering, a canticle is simply a hymn that is associated with a biblical passage that's become an important part of the liturgy. It's like a psalm, but it doesn't come from the Psalter. In order to understand the Magnificat, we need to go back a little bit further in Luke's Gospel. The first two chapters of Luke's Gospel focuses on Jesus' birth. Mary's song occurs before the account of the actual birth in Luke 2. Luke slows down the birth narrative with a series of three extended hymns, beginning with the first one, the Magnificat. Now, there are three scenes prior to this that help us to understand its context. The first scene occurs at the beginning of Luke 1, where we read about the angel Gabriel appearing in the temple to a priest named Zechariah, who is married to Elizabeth, a relative of Mary. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth are well along in their years, as one translation puts it, and they have no children. The angel tells Zechariah that Elizabeth will conceive and give birth to a son who will be great in the sight of the Lord. But Zechariah doubts and asks how he can know that this will happen. Consequently, he is unable to speak until Elizabeth gives birth to the promised son. We need to stop here and connect a few dots from the Old Testament. When we hear that Elizabeth was unable to conceive, we need to catch an important biblical thread. The theme of the barren woman who hears from an angelic messenger that she will conceive and give birth to a son occurs multiple times in the story of God's people. We begin with Sarah and Abraham and the eventual birth of Isaac. Then there's Rebekah and Isaac, and the eventual birth of Jacob and Esau. This is followed by Jacob and Rachel, and the birth of their sons. In fact, at key junctures in the history of God's people, the story focuses on a barren woman who is supernaturally enabled to conceive. Another key example is Hannah, who eventually conceives and gives birth to Samuel, and we'll come back to her. There are other examples that I won't mention, but we can ask, why this pattern? What is God trying to show his people by repeating the account of an often older, barren woman who conceives a son at a key point in Israel's history? 
Well, at least one thing is that God wants to show his people that they, all by themselves, cannot fulfill his promises. Unless God intervenes, they cannot fulfill the promises given to Abraham, and they cannot raise up the line of prophets beginning with Samuel, or the royal line beginning with David. So in Luke 1, when we hear that Elizabeth, a godly, barren woman, supernaturally conceives, we should be thinking that God is on the move again and that something really significant is about to happen, something that is humanly impossible. And indeed, that's the case here. Elizabeth will give birth to John the Baptist, who prepares the way for the Messiah. This brings us to the second scene, in which Gabriel appears to Mary in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. When we learn that Mary is a virgin, the theme of the barren woman should begin to echo in our minds, but we'll come back to that. In this second scene, Gabriel visits Mary and greets her as one favored by the Lord. Mary is puzzled and troubled, and no wonder. Here she is, a teenage girl, 12 to 14 years old, in the small, off-the-beaten-path town of Nazareth. She is not a male priest in the temple, like Zechariah. But Gabriel tells her not to be afraid, because she has found favor with God. She will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be named Jesus, who will be the promised Davidic Messiah, reigning over an eternal kingdom. Are you connecting the dots? An angel? announcing to a woman who cannot conceive that she will conceive supernaturally and will give birth to a son. All the parallels are there, but they are transforming and extending beyond our categories. This time, Mary is unable to conceive by virtue of her virginity. The son that she will bear will fulfill all God's promises because he is the longed-for Messiah. The pattern that has been repeated in Israel's history and again with Elizabeth is now fulfilled in unexpected, never to be repeated ways. And in this manner, God again shows his people that they cannot fulfill his promises. <clears throat> Indeed, they cannot produce their own savior. Only God can do this supernaturally through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is so unexpected that Mary asks the completely logical question, how can this be? Unlike Zechariah, this is not doubt, but rather an inability to understand how a virgin could conceive. To this, Gabriel responds that the Holy Spirit will come upon her. The power of the Most High will overshadow her. The imagery here is incredible. Throughout the Bible, the Spirit is associated with bringing forth new life where there is no life. Luke offers a direct parallel to the image of the Spirit hovering over the surface of the depths in Genesis 1, bringing forth life where there was none. Here we find the life-giving Spirit hovering over Mary's womb, bringing forth life where there was none. Just as the Spirit brings forth life in creation, so now he brings forth the light, the life that will be the light of the world, the life of God's recreation. As proof, 
Gabriel tells Mary that her elderly relative, Mary Elizabeth, has conceived and is in the sixth month of her pregnancy. Mary's response is remarkable. She is likely very much aware that an elderly, married, barren woman who conceives is very, in a very different circumstance than a young, betrothed, but unmarried girl. She has likely counted the costs, but still she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. Her faith and obedience are absolutely incredible. Too often, Mary is either depicted as superhuman, ethereal, detached, and definitely not like other human beings, or she's simply ignored. But she is fully human, with normal human limitations and capacities. Yet she is asked to do something absolutely extraordinary, and she obeys. In many respects, Luke is presenting her as the model disciple. She understands what is being asked of her, and she agrees and obeys. She should not be ignored. This leads us to the third scene before her beautiful song. Upon hearing Gabriel's announcement, Mary's actions are amazing. She immediately sets out to visit Elizabeth. This is not a quick stroll down the block, but rather a dangerous walk of over 80 miles. I'm really hoping that the Christmas card images that we have of Mary meekly riding on a donkey are beginning to evaporate. She risks herself and her baby to get to Elizabeth, perhaps to process all that is happening to her, away from the possible threats that she could experience in a conservative small town like Nazareth. In any event, the life-giving spirit is on the move filling Elizabeth and causing her baby to leap with joy in her womb. What a scene. Elizabeth blesses Mary as a woman, as a mother, as one who has believed what the Lord has spoken to her. Elizabeth understands that Mary is the mother of the Messiah, her Lord. What an incredible scene. Two women who are unexpectedly pregnant two women who have agreed to be used by the Lord. This is the context for the Magnificat, Mary's incredible song that we read that's in Luke 1. This is the second of three songs, excuse me, this is the first of three songs or canticles that appear in Luke 1, um, all surrounding the account of Jesus' birth. The other one is Zechariah's song, when John the Baptist is born, and the final one is Simeon's song, when Jesus is presented in the temple. One commentator likened these three songs to arias that stop the action and allow themes to be highlighted. And this is certainly the case here. Mary's song stops the action and focuses on God's vindication, his mercy, and his justice. Again, if you have any lingering images of Mary as a shy, quiet girl, they won't remain long after we look at her song. Even before we read her words, there are hints that this is not going to be a simple praise chorus. It's a good time now to consider Mary's name. In the Greek, her name is Miriam, which comes from the Hebrew for Miriam, Moses' sister. And there are some intriguing parallels between Mary and Miriam, including Miriam's own song of praise after God's deliverance. But the key parallel for the Magnificat is Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. 
and Mary draws quite extensively upon Hannah's song. Like Miriam and Hannah, Mary offers a beautiful hymn that exalts God's faithfulness to her and to the entire nation. Like Miriam and Hannah, Mary is a prophetess who points to God's mercy and justice. Her entire song is permeated with allusions to the Old Testament. Now, Hannah's song is quite remarkable. She declares the Lord's vindication for the lowly and the oppressed and proclaims that the humble and the needy will sit with nobility and be given places of honor. But Mary's song is revolutionary. She proclaims that God reverses the prevailing power structures in radical ways. Mary's song has clear messianic implications and indicates that she understands how she fits into this radical new work that God is accomplishing. This song represents her reflection on what Gabriel told her, her deep understanding of scripture and the guidance of the Holy Spirit as she contemplates the magnitude of what God is doing in and through her. Mary prophetically and powerfully is, and she's, sorry, Mary is prophetically powerful and theologically astute by praising God for her, his mercy toward her and then focusing on his mercy toward future generations and as an expression of his faithfulness to the nation Israel. In the first part of this canticle that we read, Mary praises God for what he has done on her behalf but it is clear that her exaltation points to the exaltation of God's people. The, servant, uh, the term servant anticipates Jesus' own em uh, emphasis that he came as one who served and not to be served. Like Hannah, Mary rejoices that God has seen her lowly position and has acted on her behalf. Future generations will call her blessed because God has done great things for her. Indeed, this is what God does for those who fear him, who are lowly and humble and who are oppressed. Once again, she is the model disciple who offers hope that the mighty and holy God acts on behalf of the poor and the lowly. In this way, she also anticipates the ministry that Jesus will have. In the second part of the hymn, the, shift, the focus shifts to what God has done for his people. He is faithful and his mercy is from generation to generation. This is the essence of who he is. The image of the strength of his arm that scatters the nations recalls the exodus and God's faithfulness towards his people. He scatters the proud and he brings down the mighty. This is God's justice displayed. It is the reversal of present opposition and injustice. The hungry will be satisfied and the rich will be empty-handed. What God has done for Mary is the basis for her confidence that his justice will prevail. He is the God who acts with mercy and justice for those who fear him, the poor, the powerless, and the oppressed. Mary's song sets the stage for Jesus' own ministry. Her powerful words outline what her son was set to do. He is the one who will bring forth mercy and justice that she is singing about. The lectionary readings for today make this very clear. Earlier we heard the powerful passage from Isaiah 61 read, 
These are the very words that Jesus uses to declare his own mission. After he has been baptized and tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Jesus enters the synagogue in Nazareth. These very words from Isaiah are read, and Jesus declares that on that day, these words have been fulfilled. The essence of Jesus' earthly ministry and mission to release captives and to bring good news to the oppressed were anticipated in Mary's song that she sang before he was born. Her prophetic declaration of God's great reversal, that the lowly will be exalted and that the proud will be brought low, is fulfilled in the person and the work of her son. She is not only the model disciple, she is also the model prophet and theologian. She is the prophetic voice that points to Jesus, the prophetic answer. So what can we take away from this? First, I hope that our understanding and appreciation of Mary has grown. As a child, she heard the words of Isaiah read in the synagogue, words that proclaimed that God's servant would come, one who would be a light to the nations and bring justice, one who would be pierced for the sins of his people, one who would bring salvation, one who would liberate the oppressed and bring good news to the poor. She never could have imagined that she would play a vital role in bringing about the, pro the fulfillment of these very words. She never could have imagined the supernatural way in which God would use her through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring forth life when there was none, to bear the Savior that humanity could not produce by its own efforts. Yet she was willing to be used by God in this unprecedented way. And as I said, she is the model of discipleship and obedience. Second, Mary's song helps us to see the mercy and justice that are at the heart of Jesus' ministry and mission. His mercy is from generation to generation. His justice is for all who fear him. We so need his mercy and justice. All around us are the constant reminders of this. In our own lives, we need his mercy and justice. In our neighborhoods, we need his mercy and justice. And in our world, we need his mercy and justice. Our hearts long for this mercy and justice. And like Mary, we can praise God that he has done a mighty deed in Jesus, he is scattering the proud, and he is exalting the lowly. Like Mary, we see this, um, like Mary, we may not see this clearly in our lifetimes, but we know that it is true. God's great reversal is being accomplished in Mary's son, Jesus, and it will continue until this great work is fully accomplished. Mary's song proclaims the revolutionary ways of God in fact, I read that the British Empire would not allow the Magnificat to be sung in churches when they ruled in India. Her song calls for the radical reversal that God is accomplishing through Jesus Christ. Her song exalts the God who reverses the evil of this world and raises up the lowly and oppressed. This radical reversal turns the world right side up and restores the goodness and the glory of God. Her song praises the God who asked a young girl to bear his son, the light of the nations and the hope of the oppressed. 
No wonder the rose candle of Advent is associated with joy. This is the essence of joy, to behold our Savior and to praise his salvation. Amen.